I'll open your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 27. I want to continue to talk about God's furniture. The companion passion, uh, passage is chapter 38. I think I've indicated it to you in your notes. So when you read chapter 27, we're not going to read it this morning, but I want to encourage you to read it on your own. Uh, and then just flip over to chapter 38. Chapter 38 really just chronicles uh, the fulfillment, of the actual construction of the implements that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the altar of burnt offering. We're going to talk about the courtyard uh, and uh, the oil for the lamps, all of which ultimately point us to who? They point us to Jesus. And it's, they're marvelous symbols, marvelous pictures. And as we uh, examine these uh, particular furnishings, uh, hopefully your life is edified and strengthened. And uh, you, too, uh, are amazed at the marvel of the Word of God and the design of God. You know, uh, in the beginning, we all know that when God created the heavens and the earth, it took him uh, six days and then he rested on the seventh day. Uh, I do take that literally. I believe in a literal six-day creation. And uh, I'm just kind of simple that way. It just makes sense to me. It says day, so I believe it's day. And uh, we know on the sixth day, uh, God created man. Created man in his own image. This is one of the most significant realities that the Bible can reveal to us. Um, God made man in his own image so that he could have relationship with man. That's the whole point. God wanted kids. Someone asked me, did, did, did God know ahead of time that his kids were going to rebel? Well, of course he did, yes. He knew ahead of time. And then the response was, well, if he knew ahead of time... Why, why even do it? Why even make us if you knew we were going to rebel? And my only way to respond to that is to, is to say, uh, if, if you're a parent, ask this question. As a parent, before you actually had your children, did the thought ever occur to you that very possibly those children, when you did have them, might disobey you? <laughs> even though it did... It didn't stop you. You still wanted the kids. You had them anyway, right? You figured you'd deal with them when you had to. You have a plan, right? So in the beginning, when God made man, I, and I love the, the language of the first chapter of Genesis, after the, the first several days of creation, when God finishes his work after one particular day, the next he says, it's good, it is good. And then when he creates man, he says, it is very good. Oh, don't you love that? And among other things, it points to the fact that, that uh, we are, in effect, the crowning jewel on God's creation. That, that just blows my mind every time I think about it. In this ex massive, expansive universe in which we live, with all of the, of, the, of the galaxies and all of the suns and all of the systems, and we are... These human beings on this little speck of dust in this incredible universe, we are the object of God's full attention, love, and purpose. Oh, my. Is that just amazing? So in the beginning, when God created man, 
marvelous for fellowship, for relationship. There were no barriers between God and man whatsoever. No walls, no distance, no separation. Man enjoyed continuous, unbroken fellowship with God. And in the words of Genesis chapter 3, in the garden, in the cool of the day. What a beautiful picture. Imagine walking and talking and fellowshipping with God in the garden, in the cool of the day. Isn't that a marvelous picture? Only that it would have lasted, huh? But something happened. What happened? Genesis chapter 3 chronicles what? The fall of man. The fall from that state of perfection, from that state in which man enjoyed perfect, unhindered, marvelous, continuous fellowship with God, the creator of the universe. Man sinned. Man disobeyed. He just had one thing to do. Just don't eat of that one tree. Piece of cake! Right? You would think. Remember, Adam was perfect, unlike us. He had no flaws. He wasn't sinful. He was absolutely perfect. Have you ever done something that you knew you shouldn't have done? After you did it, you go, I knew better. And as fallen beings having done that, as fallen beings having that sense, I knew better. Imagine a perfect being doing what he shouldn't do. Well, we know what happened. Adam sinned. He squandered at that point the most important thing he could ever possess, the care, the fellowship, and the guidance of God. Think about that. That is probably the most important thing you and I could possess, the care, the fellowship, and the guidance of God in our life, without which we are we're just kind of out there floating, aren't we? All of us have been there to some degree, haven't we? If you can think back to the days when you didn't have God in your life, you didn't know the truth, you were, you were, you were, you were just kind of adrift out there. Whatever, subject to any whim of the culture, uh, living by your own standards, not really fulfilled, no real hope, no real focus and direction, uh, maybe some direction from just a temporal sense, but, but nothing of any lasting, significant, fulfilling value. The very moment that Adam disobeyed God, the door to God's presence slammed shut. And at that point, man was separated from God. This is the problem with humankind. This is mankind's dilemma, that we are separated from God. This is our problem. But thankfully, God is a God of mercy and justice and compassion and grace God loved us, and he had a plan. Even though we fell short, even though we sinned, even though we disobeyed, even though we willfully rebelled against him, God still had a plan to bring us back into his presence again. Is that not awesome? This is the ultimate of reconciliation. God is, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We don't seek reconciliation to God. It's God who's at work, working his plan. And it was, a, it was a plan that would take literally generations, millennia to fulfill. But God was faithfully working his plan. Some people say, well, why does it take so long? 
Because it had to get to this century so we'd be included. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God didn't hurry it up? We want him to hurry it up now, though, don't we? One of the first stages of God's plan of redemption is revealed in the construction of the tabernacle. The whole point of the tabernacle is this would be the centerpiece of the worship of God on earth by the chosen people Israel. And the tabernacle would point back to, would be reflective, a shadow of things in heaven, the worship that goes on in heaven, and as well, it's a shadow of things to come. So it's a, it's a, at a, at a, at a significant juncture in human history here where God intervenes in his plan of redemption and he brings about the construction of the tabernacle. It is a significant, significant event. How many know that we were made to worship him? And he is worthy of our worship. It's about worship. It's about attributing worth and value and acknowledging Him and bringing Him glory and praise. All that is due Him. I mean, we understand the need for worship. We, we understand the need for heroes in our own life. We raise up our own heroes, don't we? Our culture raises up celebrities, athletes, uh, uh, renowned people, movie stars, all this. You know, they're our heroes. We have this need to, to exalt. How much more? Should God be exalted? And He is our hero. We worship Him. We speak about Him. We stand in awe of Him. And all of this would begin with the tabernacle. And it was through the tabernacle that though the people were still far removed from experiencing that close, intimate, personal relationship with God, God would allow the priests to represent the people. The priests could stand in His presence. The people could not personally approach him, but they did have to approach God through a mediator. And again, all of this is is part of the teaching and the instruction of the people so that we would understand this is how God is approached. In God's perfect timing, at the appointed hour, the Bible says, he would send into the world the one person who could open again that door to his presence. A mediator, a very special mediator, one of a kind, the only person who could give open access to God anytime, anywhere. This is why you and I can come confidently to the throne of God and we can obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. We can come confidently, not timidly. God, you said that I could come. You said I could come right into the throne room and I, can, and I can talk to you about this issue. You already know about it, but I want to talk to you. I want to unload myself, bring my request to you. And when you do so confidently, you have confidence that not only does he hear, but he's going to answer that prayer. He's going to meet that need. And, and, and invariably, he meets it in ways that blow our minds that are far better than you and I could calculate. The way we tell God to answer our prayers is puny, short-sighted and short-term. Rather, God has much more in mind when we say, Lord, you see this need. You see my life. He says, I know. And I'm working. Watch me. Be patient. Trust me. Okay, Lord. (laughs) Isn't that exciting? You can go with confidence. Because there's one person, one mediator, who has come that the priests were signatory of, who would come and open that access so that we could now 
come very right into the throne room ourselves. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Who is that one person? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he is, he is the one that we exalt, isn't he? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We exalt the name of Jesus. We praise the name of Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. You and I cannot even begin to calculate the cost to God the Father for what what it was to purchase us. You and I cannot even begin to calculate the cost to Jesus himself what it was to hang on that cross, to suffer our indignities and to die in our place. And as he did so, he is the one person who grants access to the Father. Now this is what's emphasized in the altar burnt offering, the courtyard, and as well the oil for the lampstand. I want you to notice something. As we move outside the tabernacle proper, um, to the courtyard, uh, that the articles of furniture in the courtyard are now made of what? They're made of bronze. This is significant. We have the bronze altar, we have the bronze basin out in the courtyard. Inside the tabernacle, you remember, the articles of furniture were made of what? Gold. Gold speaks of who? Christ. It speaks of the person of Jesus. The acacia wood speaks of his humanity. The gold speaks of his deity. So it speaks about the person of Jesus. As you get closer to God, as you move into the tabernacle and you approach the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the emphasis is on the person of Christ, evidenced by the articles being made of gold. As you move further out from the tabernacle, out into the courtyard, the emphasis is not so much on the person of Christ as it is on the work of Christ. You see, it's the work of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his passion, his suffering. It's the work of Christ that allows us to come to the person of Christ. Without that, uh, that altar of sacrifice out in the courtyard, you could not approach the person of Christ. And if you can't approach the person of Christ, you can't have access to the Father. Do you see that? So the tabernacle is a marvelous picture of God's plan and purpose. Jesus must die. A sacrifice must be made in order to approach Christ, to receive him into your life, so that he becomes the access to God the Father. Isn't that a marvelous picture? This is what the tabernacle is all about. Now, as we focus on the altar burnt offering... The altar sat right in the front part of the courtyard. Do you see it there on the, uh, on the screen? It was about seven feet square, roughly about four feet high. It was an incredible sight. It symbolized the need for atonement. The altar burnt offering symbolized the need for atonement. It symbolized the need for reconciliation with God. Why? Because men are separated from God. We've been separated from God since that day in the garden when Adam disobeyed. All of mankind now is separate from God. Separated. Uh, We're dying. We're separated in all of our relationships. We're separated in everything, separated from everything really meaningful in life. And we're striving and striving and striving to find meaning, purpose. We're striving to find security. All of it... 
because we're really ultimately separated from God, the true, the true source of meaning and purpose. That's man's huge dilemma. And we run to all different quarters and all different philosophies and all these different places to find the answers when the answer is found very simply in coming humbly to Christ and being back in relationship with God through Jesus so that He fills our life. He meets our need. He directs our path. It's simply that. I'm done. I know. You want, you want more blanks filled in? All right, we'll continue. As the Israelite would enter into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing he saw was the altar of burnt offering. This is the very first thing he saw. It was the focus of the attention of all who entered there. The bronze altar was an impressive sight, blazing with a red-hot fire. It was surrounded by the priests who tended the constant sacrifices Beloved, the altar just could not be ignored. You couldn't just ignore it. You couldn't just kind of walk around and pretend like it wasn't there. People try to ignore Jesus and ignore the cross and walk around it and pretend it doesn't matter. You can't. Not in really come to grips with your relationship with God or or, uh, presumably a relationship with God. Every person who entered the gate had to acknowledge the presence of the altar. And in doing so, they had to acknowledge their own need for atonement, their own need for reconciliation with God. And that could only happen through the animals that were being sacrificed on the altar. You were in Israel. You had to bring a sacrifice. You had to bring that sacrifice to the priests. That sacrifice had to be slaughtered. The blood was, if it was an acceptable sacrifice, the portion of the blood was put on the, on the horns of the altar. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then the rest of the blood was poured out on the base and the, altar, and, the, and the animal was laid on the altar and completely burned up. We'll get into the book of Leviticus. We'll talk about the, the, the marvel of these sacrifices. But the point is that that sacrifice animal was a substitute for the offerer. That should have been the offerer on that altar. But he could be reconciled to God. He could have atoned for his sin by this substitute victim, this innocent victim being sacrificed. Beloved, this is the key. This is the central truth that people must come to grips with. We tell people God loves them. We want to see them come to Jesus. Uh, that's not enough. You have to tell them the whole story. The whole story is that they are separated from God. They are guilty before a holy God. And without forgiveness of sins, they will spend eternity in hell. That's the reality of things. And people have to come to grips with that. Our need for atonement, our need for reconciliation with God through the sacrificial blood of that sacrifice of that victim, Jesus Christ. That's why he is key. That's why Jesus is so important. Because it's only Him and through Him that we can be reconciled again to God. Otherwise, we're adrift. We have no hope. We're left to our own imaginings. Now that altar was made out of acacia wood. 
and it was covered with bronze. Now, obviously, the bronze was absolutely necessary to protect the wood from uh, being burned up by the blazing fires that continually burned on that altar. And God was clear in his instructions. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13 says, The fire must never be allowed to go out. Even when the Israelites would pack up the whole, the whole tabernacle and they would move from place to place and then they would uh, lay it all out again, the fire, they still had to carry the fire with them. The fire was never, ever to go out. The acacia wood represented, again, again, Jesus' humanity, his body. The bronze would represent judgment. So here is, in Jesus' body, bearing the judgment of God for our sins. The picture is marvelous. In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, we see Paul playing this out, talking about it doctrinally. He says, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. What was the law powerless to do? It was, it was, it was impossible for the law to justify us. It was impossible for us by keep, to keep the law perfectly to stand righteous and just before God. Lord, I've kept your law perfectly. Paul thought he had done that, hadn't he? In Philippians, he says, according to the law, he was blameless. But then in Romans chapter 7, you read, when the commandment came, the tenth commandment, the only internal one, convicted him. He says, sin sprang to life and I died. He knew he was hopeless. So in Romans 8, Paul says, what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the sinful nature. You and I, as imperfect beings cannot keep God's perfect law perfectly. It's an impossibility. So what the law was unable to do, because of our weak and sinful nature, God did. And he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. That's what happens at the altar there. The picture is Jesus, his body, made to be sin covered over with judgment. Do you see that picture? How wonderfully that combination of the acacia wood and the bronze speaks of the person of Jesus who endured the fires, the fires of Calvary without being consumed. You say, well, he died. Yes, but he wasn't consumed in the sense that he disappeared and there's no more Jesus. He's kind of like the, the, the bush that Moses stumbled upon in the wilderness back in Exodus chapter 3. The bush that was on fire and didn't burn up. That was a curious thing, huh? Got Moses' attention? I think I'll go check that out. Peter, quoting from Psalm 16, expressed this same thought in his Pentecost sermon when he declared from Acts chapter 2, verse 27, You will not let the holy, your Holy One see decay. The whole point is that Jesus endured the fires of Calvary and he was not consumed. He is the only person that could have endured the cross. Anyone else would have been consumed instantly by the blazing wrath of God's judgment on sin. You and I, there's no way. No way we would ever, ever been able to endure the wrath of God. I, 
I mean, I can barely endure the wrath of one person. Isn't that true? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, you know, you do something, you mess up at work, and you, you don't want to go to work because you know the boss is going to say something. You go, oh, man, I, that's why I want to hide. Or us husbands, you know, we mess up at home. We don't want to go home. let alone bear the wrath of God for all the sins of all man for all time. I mean, I can't get my mind around that one. That's incredible. We have no way to conceive of the passion and the suffering that Jesus experienced on that cross. And yet it did not consume him. But he was the only one, the only one that could bear the total judgment and wrath of God on that cross. I mean, you see the wrath of God being played out in the book of Revelation, don't you? And we think, oh my gosh, I do not want to be around for that. But here's Jesus on that cross, bearing it, taking it, hour after hour after hour, consuming Him. Beloved Jesus Christ, why did He do that? He endured the suffering of the cross, one, that we might be saved from our sins. Oh, my. He did that with that we might be saved from our sins. If we're going to have a relationship with God, if God wants us back into a relationship, he can't just wink at our sin. He can't pretend like it doesn't exist. He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet and say, well, no big deal like we do. He's got to deal with it. He's going to judge sin. It is so heinous. And if we're to have relationships, somehow we have to be delivered, saved from our sins. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. How many are waiting for him? Oh, yes. What's our prayer? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. People think we're fools. They think we're fools. They think, oh, those Christians, they're such stupid people. They believe these fairy tales. No, these, these truths give me hope. They answer the questions. They solve my dilemma. They give my life meaning and hope. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter says, for Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Secondly, Jesus Christ endured the suffering of the cross that we might be set free from the curse of the law. Woo, I love that. Now, what exactly is the curse of the law that I needed to be set free from? The curse of the law very simply is this. The law demands perfection. The law is like, an, like a, a, a husband or a father who demands perfection. Demands it. And if, the, if, you, if you're not perfect, you're condemned. I condemn you, I condemn you, I condemn you. Perfection, perfection. You always got to be there. That's like the law. We can't keep the law. Law says, keep me, keep me perfectly. If you don't keep me perfectly, I condemn you. We have no standing before the law. 
We have no standing before God through the law. We can't be justified because we're continually falling short. We're not keeping the law. How many kept the Ten Commandments perfectly already this morning? We just started our day. We've already broken them. So he set me free from the curse of the law. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus Christ endured the suffering of the cross that we might be healed. Oh, that we might be healed. He opens the door to grace. He opens the door to mercy. He opens the door to healing. You hear the apostles praying, God, stretch forth your hand of mercy and heal. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. The great messianic prophet. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are what? We're healed. Now what does that mean? We're healed. What does that mean? It means first of all that we're healed spiritually. We were dead to God. Alive to sin, but now we're dead to sin, we're alive to God. He has raised us from the dead spiritually. Romans chapter 6. All things have passed away. We are new creations. We've been healed spiritually. And a person who is healed spiritually has access to the grace of God to provide healing in other areas of his or her life. Now I'm going to use a word here, and this is an important word. We're healed perfectly spiritually and we can experience substantial healing temporally. You notice the difference? We are Spiritually speaking, we are perfectly healed. We are justified with God. New creations. Born again. Temporally speaking, we can experience substantial healing. Not total and perfect in this life but substantial. A Christian, a whole new life opens up to that Christian, to that person. Whole new opportunities. The grace of God, the mercy of God begins to work in that person's life to restore in so many ways. Relationships are restored. Healing in relationships. Healing in in material things, finances. People get their lives together. They start honoring God with their finances. Physical healings come about. Restorations. Substantial healing by His stripes. But it starts first spiritually. Beloved, I'm going to suggest to you that an atonement that does not last, a reconciliation with God that is not enduring, is of absolutely no value at all. Isn't that true? I want to know that what God has done, God has done, and that it's finished. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to keep adding stuff and doing things to ensure the fact that what he's done is complete. The philosophies of the world offer many, many alternatives to becoming right with God. People who believe in a God of some sort. They teach that a person can approach God. A a person can, can be right with God, if you will, by simply doing the best he or she can. How many of you have ever said that? I'm doing the best I can. How many many say that? You've not been around me. You know what my response to that is when I hear that. People say, I'm just doing the best I can. And and what's my response? Nobody does the best they can. Nobody does the best they can. You can always do better, can't you? 
but I'm just doing the best I can. Shut up. <laughs> As if this is a big deal. And people really believe by doing the best they can, they can be right with God. No, you can't. They offer an alternative of, of maybe just rituals of religion and, and rules of religion. Just be really, There are literally billions of people on the face of this earth who are very sincerely religious and follow religious rituals, thinking, believing that this makes them right with God. I.e., we see what's going on uh, in the Middle East and Iraq with these people who kill themselves and kill other people, that somehow this is going to make them right with God, and they go and be with God. No way. If they saw what was going to happen to them, they're going to be spending eternity in hell. This is repulsive to God. Or maybe you could belong to a, a certain church or a certain religion. There are, there are Christian churches, presumably Christian, who preach and teach in our own community that you must belong to our church and be baptized by us, otherwise you're not a genuine Christian. You can only be right by God by being part of our group. That's not true. There are people who believe that God can be worshipped by all religions, no matter what he's called. All roads lead to God. No! Not at all. You see, the bronze altar clearly states a different message than the world proposes. The bronze altar says that atonement that reconciliation with God, that a right relationship with God requires the forgiveness of sin, that is absolutely necessary. And there's only one way sin can be forgiven. There must be a sacrifice for that sin. Man needs a Savior. Man needs a Savior. A Savior who can offer a sacrifice for sin that is totally acceptable to God. Once for all. We can't lose sight of the fact that the wages of sin is death. The bottom line is either we pay that price forever or we allow the Lord Jesus to pay it for us. Either way, someone's going to have to pay the price for sin. It's an eternal price. Jesus' death on the cross has eternal significance because he's an eternal being who died a death that has eternal consequences and significance. You and I, fallen beings, will, if we choose to reject Christ, uh, we're going to pay that price forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Why is hell forever? Why is damnation, condemnation forever? Because we've offended an eternal God. And we can never make full atonement throughout all eternity. That's why the punishment is eternal. Horrifying. The doctrine of hell is the most horrific doctrine in the Bible, and yet it is true. It goes right back to the beginning when man separated himself from God. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned. You can't just shake your finger at Adam and say, Oh man, if I was back there, I wouldn't have done what Adam had done. Ha! You know better now and you still do it. 
Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ fulfills the message and the symbolism of the bronze altar. Jesus, and only Jesus. Now, another feature of that altar, as I said earlier, were the four horns. On that altar, you'll notice that they were, Moses would have constructed these horns. They were symbolic. They were just decorative. They spoke of some very substantial biblical truths, biblical principles. First of all, they spoke of the atoning power of the altar. And that atoning power was symbolized by the fact that God would accept the sacrifice as a substitute for the offerer. This is seen in Exodus chapter 29, verse 12, when the sacrifice was offered, when the blood uh, was shed of the victim, that the priest, if the sacrifice was acceptable, the priest would take some of the blood with his finger and point it, paint it onto the horns, symbolizing that, the, that there was power to forgive in the altar via the horns. And then the rest of the blood of the sacrifice animal will be poured out on the base of the altar. This is a tremendous picture. Today, God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus as that substitute. Jesus, in effect, is the altar. He's the altar. He's the sacrifice. He's, he's all of it. He is the atoning, reconciling power that reconciles a repentant person to God. Again, Jesus is not only represented by the, by the altar, he's represented also by the horns. Secondly, and by the way, it's important to remember that one must first call upon the name of the Lord to receive that reconciling power, right? You've got to call, you've got to be active, you've got to participate. You know what the, one of the most eloquent prayers is? Help! Jesus said, don't think you'll be heard for your many words. I, I've often prayed that one word prayer. Help! You think God might answer that prayer? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. He knows the despair out of which you cry. Secondly, the horn throughout Scripture, and you read through many, many passages in Scripture, was symbolic of power and strength. Therefore, the horns of the altar are symbolic of God's power and God's strength. God alone has the power. God alone has the strength to deliver his people from sin, from the trials and temptations of life. God and God alone has that power. You and I can't deliver ourselves. We struggle and fight, and it's by the grace of God, most of the time imperceptible to us, that he comes and rescues us. Thirdly, the horn symbolized God's salvation. God's salvation can be experienced by every person who cries out to him, who pleads for salvation. And fourthly, the horn symbolized God's protection, God's security. That he was a sanctuary and he was a very present help in trouble. God promised Israel, he said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you, I'll keep you close to my heart. I'll watch over you, I'll lead you, I'll guide you. Didn't he promise that? We have the promise of the Lord. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The horn was a symbol of God's protection, that he was a sanctuary. 
David, in Psalm 18, verse 2, uh, praises God for this very reality. He says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let's read that together. Would you read that together with me? The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! He is! And that's represented again by the horn. Even David refers to that. And uh, when we get into the book of Numbers, and we'll study the, the cities of refuge. city of refuge was placed throughout the land in each of the tribes' areas. Uh, if, if you accidentally murdered somebody uh, to protect yourself from retribution from the, from the victim's family, you could flee to a city of refuge. And in the city of refuge was an altar, and you could hold on to the horns of the altar, symbolic of God's protection for you until your case would be uh, adjudicated. So this, the horns are, are significant, and they again speak of uh, these things of which we spoke. I just thank God that he did not commission me to design a way to secure him, secure favor with him, or any man. What if God said to you, okay, now, uh, I want you to design an altar. I want you to design a way that you can have access to me. How would we have designed an altar? Think of the ways. Let me just enumerate the ways we would do it. We would no doubt design an altar of religion and ritual. Why do I say that? Because the vast majority of people on this earth have done just that. That's a very typical, natural, human way. Well, let's just do all of our rituals. Let's, and we concoct the most fascinating rituals to try to, to get to God, don't we? I mean, if you just read and study comparative religions, you're amazed at the ways people have figured out to try to have access to God. Or maybe we would have uh, constructed an altar that would allow us to do our own thing. Right? I mean, we do like to do our own thing, don't we? One of our favorite things is to submit to authority, isn't it? Well, I tell you when, you, when you try to exercise biblical authority in a person's life, in church discipline, they flee every single time. In the 25, nearly 26 years of pastoring this church, I can count on one hand the number of people who have submitted to church discipline. That's tragic. They're going to go down the street where somebody else will love them rather than stay and submit to church discipline. No, we want to do our own thing. We would have made an altar of works and good deeds. Generating our own self-righteousness, if you will. Look at how good I am, God. Look all that I've done for you. Jesus condemns that, doesn't he, at the end of Matthew, or the chapter 7 of Matthew? He says, many will come to me and many will say, didn't I do all this stuff in your name? And Jesus says, what? Never did I know you. But that's our way. If God had given us... The, uh, the privilege of designing a means whereby to approach him. Or maybe we built an altar of self-help, self-esteem, and just doggone it, feeling good about myself. I just want to feel good about myself. There's nothing good about us to feel good about. 
That's why we need a Savior. That's why we just have to acknowledge we're sinners. So well, that's not very edifying. No, it's the truth. You're edified by the Holy Spirit in you as he transforms you and makes you more like Jesus. There's no good thing in me, in my sinful nature, quoting the Apostle Paul. And yet we're looking for all kinds of good things, all kinds of ways, you know, pump up my self-esteem. I want to feel good about myself. No, you need to have a right view of yourself. You are desperate. You are in need of moment-by-moment moment grace of God and mercy of God. When was the last time you spent the whole day just worshiping Him? Loving Him, telling Him thank you. It's mostly about us, isn't it? Maybe we had constructed an altar of such that would require no sacrifice at all. Interesting. But the bottom line is the altar burnt offering taught us three great truths. First one. Sacrifice is necessary. Sacrifice is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of the blood of a sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice is necessary, but that sacrifice has to die. And thirdly, there is no way to approach God to be saved other than through the death of that substitute sacrifice. Now, these things are not new to us, are they? But they're necessary to rehearse again and again and again and again. Jesus Christ is that sacrifice. It was his blood that was shed. He died as our substitute. Now let's move quickly to the courtyard. The courtyard of the tabernacle symbolized that God could be approached. The whole symbolism of the courtyard was God could be approached. It also separated the holy presence of God from the outside world. In other words, this was, the, this was where God dwelt. Only those who sought God and sought his forgiveness could enter. And the only way to enter God's presence was through one entrance. There weren't many ways to approach God. There was only one entrance. The courtyard was 75 feet wide, 150 feet long. The entrance was on the east end, symbolic of the eastern gate. If you're a student of prophecy, you understand the eastern gate. The entrance was 30 feet wide. The walls of the courtyard were to be made of linen. And the linen symbolized the righteousness and holiness of God and his kingdom. So when a person looked to God, when a person entered into the courtyard, he must realize, she must realize that God dwells in righteousness and holiness the linen walls would be a reminder of that. We must do everything as we approach God in reverence, in awe, in adoration, and in worship. He must be praised. We must praise Him. We must thank Him. 
that he even allows us to enter his presence. Think about that. God, thank you that I can come to you. Thank you that you let me come in. Thank you that I can enter your presence. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the symbolism of the walls of the courtyard. He is the righteousness of God. He is the only door. He is the only access. He is the only gate. Uh, In John chapter 10, verse 9, John chapter 10, verse 9. We must be stuck, must be frozen. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the gate. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way. No one can come to the Father but through me. So he, the, 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 the courtyard curtains and the entranceway picture are fulfilled in Jesus. Do you see that? And lastly, the lampstand. We studied the lampstand earlier, and the lampstand simply illuminated the way into God's presence. Without it, the inner tabernacle would have been absolutely dark. The priest would have been stumbling about, not knowing what they were doing, where they were doing. For the human heart needs illumination. The human heart... When darkness governs it, causes stumbling about. How many of us have stumbled about and some still stumbling about? Darkness in the human heart causes fear and confusion. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. Speaking of people who know God, they don't, they don't honor Him as God, nor do they give thanks Their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts become darkened. There's no real hope. There's no real joy there. They're lonely people, if truth be known, inside. They may give the appearance of being very gregarious, very friendly, but they can't stand to be alone because they're lonely, because their hearts are dark, helpless, empty, hopeless. Helpless people, empty people, hopeless people are driven, driven, if they don't seek the one true God and forgiveness from their alienation, they will find, try to find something in false religion, false worship, false teaching. We see that again and again and again and again. The olive oil for the lamp. Olive oil was interesting. It was to be used to keep the lamp burning continually. The oil came from unripened olives that were not crushed, but they were lightly pressed. And the pulp was separated from the pits and from the skins. So the, 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 the Israelites would take this pulpy mass and <clears throat> without any of the other mixture, uh, and they would put that in a basket, and the olive oil, the pure olive oil, would, dri- would drip down. The basket would filter out any of the other impurities, and the pure oil would drip down. It would give this oil that would burn literally without smoke. And so there would be no smoke inside the inner uh, tabernacle 
where that lamp would have to continually burn, where there was no uh, ventilation for it to, to vent, and you wouldn't get the smoke on the inner curtains. The lampstand simply, again, was to provide its light continuously in the presence of the Lord. Uh, Leviticus 24.2 tells us that that was to burn continuously. So the priests were always having to replenish the light, always having to replenish the oil, always having to trim the wicks of the lamp. It required constant attention. And this was a permanent command by God to be kept by all generations for all generations. Why? Because Christ is the light to all generations, is he not? All men, women, and children of all of history. When the light of God is hidden from men, the darkness brings destruction and death. This is why Jesus says, don't put a basket on your lamp, on your, on the light. The world needs our light to shine. Because where the light doesn't shine, darkness prevails, and men love the darkness. When God's light is shielded from the acts of sinful men, their hearts become hardened. You and I know, without the light of Christ shining, people will just go their own way. They love the darkness, and their hearts will become hardened. Their consciences will be seared, to use the language of the New Testament would justify our behavior. But wherever the light of God is present, illuminates the darkness. Men do not harden their hearts, though they may try. I, I have this congregation of pagans at the Spectrum Health Club. And it's marvelous to me. I, I, I was gone for several months because of my knee and so forth, and, and I've been going back now for about the last two months, and, and all these guys I've been witnessing to. It's funny. I just, I'll be sitting on the floor icing my knee, and slowly they begin to come around. And I say, my flock is back. It's just, it's amazing to me. But, the, but they're, they're drawn to the light. They don't realize it. When God's light is extinguished, people follow after false gods. Why? Because we are designed to worship. We hunger to follow God. And when there's no visibility, this is why the church is so critically important in this world. That's why you and I have a tremendous mission and privilege to be the light of the world. Jesus Christ is that true light. And his light is never extinguished. His light is always shining someplace. Even in China, where the government tries to extinguish the light, Jesus' light pops up every place. Isn't that exciting? His light is always burning to show a person how to approach God. To show a person how to secure God's approval. His light is always burning to show a person how to face the trials of life, no matter how severe they might be. His light is always shining to show a person how to live a holy and righteous life. It's only by the light of Christ. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
I mean, you have to look, you stop and think. Just, I want life and light in my life. Isn't that true? The only way you do it is by following Jesus. Following Jesus. Following Jesus. It's, the implication of that is significant beyond just saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes these marvelous words that God made his light shine in our hearts. God did that. You and I didn't generate it. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And lastly, beloved, throughout Scripture, oil is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit also known as the Spirit of Christ. You and I as believers, you and I as disciples, you and I as professing believers, we must be filled with God's Spirit. Why? So that the people of the world can see Christ in us and through our lives. And His love. I had a conversation with a woman in our church whose whose parents are um, involved in, in leading a, a Buddhist temple. And her father is very, very sick, and, uh, and she's, she's found herself in conflict with him. She's become a believer. She's no longer Buddhist and so forth. And, and, uh, and so she's anxious and fearful that he's going to die without knowing Jesus. And so she's trying to evangelize him. Anybody ever do that? I said, stop it. Stop it. Love him. Hug on his neck. Kiss him. Oh, he doesn't like that. He'll grow to love it. Trust me. Don't argue him into the kingdom. Love him into the kingdom. Let the light and the love of Jesus come out of you. Relax. Let Jesus do this. You see, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in us that points people to Jesus. You have to believe that. Every place you go, you take God's Spirit with you. Isn't that true? Whether you're cognizant of it or not, He is there. And He is a witness Sometimes it's better that we keep our mouth shut and let him witness rather than us being an offense to people. A spirit-filled Christian finds themselves pointing people to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's impossible. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. John chapter 16. Jesus again. uh, When he, uh, the Spirit of truth comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Notice this now. He will bring glory to me. What will he do? He bring glory to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus. 
People want to, want to focus on the Holy Spirit and glorify the Holy Spirit and praise the Holy Spirit. No, no. The Holy Spirit's embarrassed when you do that. He wants, to point, he wants us to point people to Jesus. He'll take what is mine and make it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Beloved, we need Jesus in our life. We need Jesus in our life. We are sinners. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of works that any man should boast. It is purely a work of God. He is worthy, beloved, of our continued worship, praise, adoration, and thanksgiving. He is worthy. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we do praise you this morning. We thank you for your great grace and mercy. We thank you that you, in Christ, have reconciled us to yourself. We thank you that we do possess a hope of glory. We thank you that you are at work in us to conform us to your likeness. We thank you for the church. Lord, that as we participate week after week, day after day, in the life of the church, we are strengthened in our faith. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us to love one another, to encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, we live in difficult times. We understand that. We live in times that really have signs speaking of the end. We don't know when that day is, but we know that you know. But Father, until that time, you called us to occupy, to be a light, to remember from whence we came, and Lord, that we bring good news to other people. We do, again, this morning, ask you to send workers into the harvest, for the harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. Lord, open our eyes to those people around us who need you. We pray, God, that through our very presence in their life, through the love that they feel, the grace that they feel, God, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We give you praise this morning, Father. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing his praises.